Well, last week I reminded us that the world is actively engaged in false advertising, offering us a suitcase full of happiness, and inside that suitcase, what do we find? Dead cat. Yeah, thank you. Some of you were paying attention last week. Some of you are like, what is he talking about? You have to listen to the introduction for last week. What is the world offering us? Happiness, contentment in the ways of the world. But it's false advertising. Well, this morning, for the sake of time, I want to pick up right where we left off last week. This is part two of our study in Psalm 1. Some of you are like, Chris, I didn't think you could spend a whole message in one verse. There you go. Just unpacking verse 1. And we saw last week, Psalm 1 is a wisdom psalm. Some of us would expect to see a call to praise introducing the book of Psalms because after all, what is the theme of Psalms? What is it? Worship. And instead of a call to worship, we have a call to righteousness. Psalm 1 is a wisdom psalm. And we understand that. Because if we are to live in a way, worship-filled obedience to God, we must be rightly related to him. So I appreciate Psalm 1. It's a beloved psalm for most of us. And I think most of us can identify, even as we looked at verse 1 last week, we live in a world that is offering us something. We live in a world, maybe it's in your school, maybe it's where you, in your community, maybe it's at your job where you are being tempted to listen to the advice of the world, to follow their ways in pursuit of what the world promises. And some of you have come face to face with those decisions and had to say, no, as for me and my house, we will serve and honor the Lord. You've had to stand up to it. Because otherwise, as we saw last week, you will start to trail into that spiral of sin, listening to the advice of the wicked, and then at some point, engaging in their active sinful lifestyle and then from there sitting down with them and adopting that fatal attitude of a mocker of God. Now you are a doctor of damnation, encouraging others to follow your wicked ways. And here in Psalm 1, the psalmist understood man's longing for contentment. He understood that we are looking for happiness. So here in Psalm 1, we find the answer. It's not by putting ourselves first. It's not by following the ways of the world, no. Instead, it is by putting God first and following the path of life that he has laid out for us. So Psalm 1 is going to teach us how to wisely stay on the blessed path of life, all the while how to avoid the sorrowful path of death. So we're going to continue to compare and contrast these two paths. Open up to Psalm 1 if you're not there yet. We're going to jump into verse 2 where we left off last week. Verses 1 to 3 give us the first path. It is the way of the righteous, which is the blessed path of life. Follow along as I read Psalm 1, verses 1 to 3. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. Again, in these three verses, we 
see that the way of the righteous is portrayed in terms of what it prohibits. We saw that last week. What does it prohibit? We are to avoid the influence of the wicked, their counsel, their lifestyle, their attitude. But here in verse 2, we also see what it promotes, and then in verse 3, what it promises. So let's look at verse 2. The way of the righteous promotes. And what does it promote? His delight is in where? Not the world, not their counsel, not their lifestyle, but where? In the Word of God. It's interesting, this word delight It's greater satisfaction in God's truth than the world's pleasures. That's the idea that it has. Again, this is what pleases us. There's a sense of anticipation in this word. I loved Christmas, not because of all the good things that I got. Parents, what is one of the best things about Christmas when you have small children? Your kids can't wait to do what? It's like, can we just get on with the with the Bible store already, they're, they're like dancing on the, on the soles of their feet. They're, they're leaning in. They're like, I can't wait to get into those presents. And, and there's an eagerness and anticipation to unpack. It's just pure, unbridled joy. Delight in the word of God. And the, dele- the believer's delight is not only in knowing studying, memorizing the Word of God, but especially in doing the Word of God rather than being deceived by the wicked. How do we know that? Because of grammar here between verse 1 and 2. What do we find? How blessed is a man who does not do these three things, but what does verse 2 begin with? But in comparison, in contrast, he delights. So we have to understand something here. It's not just the removal of wickedness It's not just the Christian who says, okay, I'm going to avoid the influence of the world and the wicked. I'm just going to remove myself from those things. No, it's what we're filled with. And what are we filled with? The truth of God in his word. Why? So that we would walk in righteousness. I love what James Montgomery Boyce said in his commentary in the Psalms, describing this contrast between Verse 1 and verse 2, he said this, the contrast between the two ways may be put like this. It is the difference between those who are in love with sin and those who love God. The first class love sin's ways and follow it. The second love God and seek him in scriptures where he may be found. I referenced this last week. How do you know if you are allowing the ways of the world and the wicked to influence you? through TV and film and radio and all the other things, the blogs and social media and all those things, how do I know if it's influencing me? Well, the reality is the more that we know and love God and love his word, guess what? The more we will grow in our ability to discern if and how we are being influenced by the world. You say, well, Chris, how do you know that? Because what does Hebrews 5, 13 and 14 compare? The milk tricker with the what? The meat eater. What is the milk drinker? If you're a milk drinker, what are you? Immature. You sip on the word of God. But then in verse 14, the writer of Hebrews says this, but solid food is for the mature, 
who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. The more we delight in the word, the more we study it, the more we understand it and memorize it, hide it in our hearts, the more we practice it, guess what? The Spirit of God gives you discernment to be able to discern this is good, this is not good. So when the world calls evil good, what does this discernment do? That's not true. And we can go to the word of God with the Spirit's help to discern that. We must delight in the law of the Lord and in his law he meditates day and night. To meditate day and night is to think intently, to think at length, to ponder. In fact, I love Donald Whitney when he came and visited us. What was it, like a year and a half ago, he said that he was writing a book on meditation because he believes that it's one of the spiritual disciplines that's being lost in the church today. What does it mean to meditate on God's word? And I love what Donald Whitney said, talking about the distinction between Bible reading and meditation. He said, reading the Bible is exposure to Scripture. Meditation is absorption of Scripture. You see the difference? When we read the Word of God, when we hear the Word of God, we're exposing ourselves to it. When I meditate on the Word of God, when I think about it and I ponder and I dwell on it, I I let it percolate in my heart and mind, I'm absorbing it into my body, into my mind, into my life. Now, this may shock you. I am not a farmer. Some of you are like, how long have you lived in Texas? A long time. And you still don't own own cowboy boots? Don't judge me. I I have my flip-flops. I am from California. I know you love me in spite of. I'm not a farmer. I grew up in the mean streets of L.A. The only thing I knew about cows was where to find them, at In-N-Out, hamburger. I've never owned a cow. However, I have studied how cows eat. The cow will take in a mouthful of grass and chew it. Once swallowed, where does the food go? Well, to the stomach's first section where it's mixed with chemicals and softened. Next, the stomach's powerful muscles send that softened food back up to the cow's mouth again. Gross. And what does the cow do? Choose the cud. It's rechewed and eventually re-swallowed again, this time to another section of the stomach. Sometimes this can go back and forth. It's a lot of chewing. And finally, the food enters the last section of the stomach, the true stomach, where digestive juice is mixed with the food, started its way to the intestines to be completely digested. See, when we read God's word, we must read it like the cow eats its food. I get up early before work to have my quiet time with God. And I carefully read one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 84, 11. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk. I know you weren't prepared. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. How many good things does he withhold? No good things. And I read it. And I study it to to get understanding, to get a sense. What does that mean? What is Psalm 8411 saying? And I pray, God, 
Would you help me to know this? Would you help me to live this out? Lord, in fact, would you help me to apply this once today, at least once? That to the truth of Psalm 8411, I would do it at least once. I close my Bible and I go to work. I've chewed it and what? Bloop. Now let's say I work in an office like I did when I worked here in Greenways Plaza. I left LAPD to come to Houston to be a headhunter, to be a recruiter. Some of you are like, well, headhunter? Like you, you stalked people? No, no. Recruiter. Hired people. I worked in an office. First time I ever worked in an office. Let's say I'm working in an office and I go about my day and I'm working. I hit a lunch break and I go to the lunchroom and I'm there alone with my Tupperware of food because Shelly was trying to get me to eat healthy because I was getting very large sitting in that office all day. And I pull out my Bible and what do I turn to? Psalm 84.11. And I reread it a couple times. And now I begin to look at cross-references and now I begin to study other places where it uses these terms. And what am I doing? I'm not just exposing myself to Scripture. What am I doing? Absorbing. It's digestive work. I begin to think and pray about it. I chew it over. And what, once my break is over, what do I do? Boom. Swallow it back down again. Go back to my desk. Later that afternoon, what happens? My boss comes up and says, Chris, you completed the project, right? <gasps> not only did I not complete the project, I forgot all about the project. What's going to happen? Well, if I answer truthfully, I look like a fool. My boss will have less confidence in me, and I will probably get passed over for that promotion again. And let us not forget my office nemesis, Andy. Dun, dun, dun. You know, the one who is vying for my job? Guess what? If I tell the truth, what is Andy going to do? Bad mouth me. Talk down about me to my coworkers, maybe even to my boss. I'm tempted, aren't I? I'm faced with two choices. I can allow the influence of the world to help me justify telling a half-truth. Well, well, listen, you know, you didn't give me enough time. Is that really the truth? No, what is the truth? I mean, that may be true. I didn't have enough time, but what is the truth? I forgot. Or maybe I start blame shifting. we have any blame shifters in here? Some of you are like, well, it's not my fault. It's, yeah. What does a blame shifter do? It's not my fault, Lord. It's this woman you gave me with. This woman you saddled me with. Well, well, look, boss, I mean, it's this team. If they had only done their parts, I mean, I wasn't in charge of the calendar. If I was in charge of the calendar, we would have gotten it done in time. What am I doing? Doing or saying whatever I need to to avoid the negative consequences that come from speaking truth, from laying aside falsehood. I can do that. And maybe I've even heard others do it or I've seen others do it and they seem to get away with it. Again, what's the warning of verse one? Don't listen to their counsel. Don't imitate their lifestyle. Don't adopt their fatal attitude. I can do that. Hoping to what? Reduce the consequence. Again, why do we lie? Why do we deceive? 
Because ultimately, I'm afraid of something. I'm afraid something's going to be taken away, or I'm afraid I'm going to be given a punishment. And so I lie, I deceive to avoid those things. There's fear driving it. That is one option. What's the other option? I can do what the Word of God says. I can tell the truth. Why? Because I trust that my gracious and glorious God is my son and my shield. What does it mean that God is my son? What does the son provide? Blessing, life. It has the picture in the Old Testament of God as my provider. He gave me this job. He can help me keep it. Or, what? Take it away. What does it mean that God is my shield? I have been meditating on this psalm, on this one verse, and I start to think about God as my shield. What was a shield used for? To protect. The darts would come, the arrows would come, shield up. God is my protector. And now I've not just exposed myself to Psalm 8411, casually read it and then forgot about it. I'm I'm absorbing the truth of what Psalm 8411 says, and in that moment... I'm thinking about no good thing does he withhold. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. If I choose the unrighteous way and choose to give in to what my flesh and the world is telling me, he's not going to bless me. I'm not walking uprightly. But I can trust God. No good thing will he withhold if I do what is right and pleasing to him. And what happens? In that moment, the Spirit of God uses the Word of God, which I have been meditating on and hiding in my heart, to bring what? Conviction. You ever have have that happen? Sometimes my wife starts talking, and I'm like, stop, just stop. I get it. She's my little helper. But it doesn't just bring conviction. What does it bring? The commitment to do what will please the Lord. And I trust the Lord and I obey the Lord. I follow him. Regardless of the consequences. Regardless of what Andy may say. Regardless of the consequences of my boss may let me go. What am I trusting in? No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. I have to trust God rather than my own wisdom. Because I've delighted in the law of the Lord. I've meditated on it day and night. This is what it means to meditate day and night in God's word. And it's applying Colossians 3.16. Colossians 3.16, allowing the word of Christ to richly dwell within us. What does it mean to richly dwell? It has the idea of abundantly. I am so in the word of God that as I go about my day, it spills out. It's so in my heart and my mind. I'm not just reading it. I'm absorbing it. I'm thinking about it. I'm dwelling on it. I'm delighting it. I'm anticipating. I can't wait to get back into the word of God. So I can't help. It's going to come out. It's richly dwelling in me. I don't simply read it and then promptly forget all about it 20 minutes later. Has that ever happened to you? How many of you are reading through the Bible in a year? Some of you seem unsure. Yeah. Yeah. You're reading through the Bible in a year. I love that. I love it. I think everybody should do it. One of the greatest challenges for me when I've read through the Bible is what, what's the good thing about reading through the Bible in a year? You have a plan and a schedule. What's the one negative thing about reading through the Bible in a year? You have a plan and a schedule. And if you're like me, uh, semi-perfectionist, uh, what must you do? Read it every day. 
That ever happened to you where you get to your Bible reading plan and you're like, oh, man, I'm like two weeks behind, three weeks behind. And so you get, uh, you know, hopefully uh, that's not you. That was just me. And so when you come to it, what do you do? Uh, okay, I got to read my Old Testament, Old Testament, Psalm, yes, Proverb, New Testament. Boom, check. Mm. Six minutes. And then what? You're off to work. Check. And then what happens the rest of the day? How has what you read impacted the way you thought, the way you responded to circumstances, the way you interacted when someone cut you off on the road, when someone didn't appreciate you at work or say, at a girl, at a boy, when something happened at class and someone made fun of you or bullied you? How does what you read that morning change your response because you've delighted in the law of God and you've meditated on it? I read the Bible, I think, and meditate throughout the day on what it means and in how I can live it out in my life. I chew it, then I swallow it, then I bring it back up again, chew it, then swallow it, and I repeat this process as much and as often as I need in order for me to understand and apply the word of God to my life. Why? Psalm 119.97, oh, how I love thy law. So I meditated on it throughout the day. Do you love the law of God? Again, one of the most well-known verses that we memorize in Psalm 119 is verse 11. Psalm 119.11 is on Bible memorization. So again, it's a good one to memorize because it's on Bible memorization. What does Psalm 119.11 say? Thy word I have treasured in my heart so that I may not sin against thee. Why do we treasure God's word in our heart? Because I don't want to sin. I don't want to sin. I don't want to think unbiblical. I don't want to speak unbiblical. I don't want to do unbiblical things. In fact, Ephesians 6.17 calls us to take up the full armor of God. And in verse 17, this also includes the sword of the Spirit, which is what? What is the sword of the Spirit? It's the Word of God. Do you think of it as the the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God? When faced with the influence of the wicked, the temptation, if all of you have in your armory is John 3.16, and the shortest verse in the Bible, which is? pin the metal upon your chest. Good job. You may know the shortest verse in the Bible. You probably don't know the reference. Oh, there it is. Thanks, Ron. You get two medals. Jesus wept. I mean, I can, I can hide that. I can treasure that one in my heart. Who doesn't know John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only... Wait, do you know it or not? I feel like I'm a solo up here. Right? We know it. We sang it as a child. But when you're faced with anger or lust or greed or lying at work, when you're faced with stealing, crippling anxiety or fear, those are great swords. But they're not meant for every battle, are they? (laughs) Okay, Jesus wept. And the Spirit goes into your armory and he finds those two swords. What must we do? 
Well, the more we delight in and meditate on God's word, the more we do, Psalm 1911, treasure the word of God, hide it in our heart. And guess what? The more you read it and study it and think about it and absorb it, what ends up happening to that verse anyway? Where does it get stuck? In your mind. You end up memorizing it just by delighting in it, just by meditating on it, just by rereading it. Get stuck in your heart and your mind. The more we delight and meditate on God's word, the more weapons we provide the Holy Spirit to help us to stay on the way of the righteous and how to avoid the influence of the wicked. And that's why the Spirit of God will use the word of God hidden in your heart in those moments when you face temptation to help you to know, no, yes, Lord. No to the world. Yes to my Lord and Savior. So let me ask you this morning, do you love God's word? You know the right answer is yes. You know the reality is some of us love studying God's word. We love information about God's word. We love always having the right answer. We love being the first one to raise our hand. We love being able to quote verses more than everyone else. We love being able to speak up in our grow group discussion. I think some of us love truth, the Bible, information. The question is, why do we love it? Why do we delight in it? Voice is exactly right. Because where is God found? In the pages of Scripture. This is not an end in and of itself. What is this? It's a means to an end, which is what? To love the Lord God. Do you love the law of God because you love the Lord? And not just knowing it, but do you love delighting in the law of God to do it? Don't just be a hearer. Be what? Be a doer. Be a doer of the word of God. And I would encourage you, we don't have time, I would love to just read Psalm 19 and Psalm 119. In fact, I was at that shepherd's conference where Mark Dever just read Psalm 119. Took up like 33 minutes of his sermon. And you think, man, this is a waste of time. Oh, wait, I was about to say that. Is reading Psalm 119 a waste of time? No, because it's powerful and living. And it was like, wow. I mean, we all clapped at the end. It's like nobody's ever, you know, had the, the courage just to read all of Psalm 119 in a message. It was powerful. Because what are Psalm 19 and Psalm 118 about? The characteristics of the word of God, what it is, and also what it does. I encourage you to study those on your own. In fact, I've got that on one of our questions on the back. Read it, study it, think about it, write it down on three by five cards, carry it in your pocket. Some of you are like, what's a three by five card? You know, for, for those of you that thought that, you just put it on your phone. That, that's the equivalent culturally. Maybe you put it on a screensaver so that it pops up. The first thing on your phone is the word of God. And it reminds you, that's what I'm working on. That's what I'm trying to absorb. That's what I'm trying to get. That's what I'm trying to do to the glory of God. Do you read it on your lunch break? Do you read it throughout your day? Do you talk about what you've read? Do you talk about it with your spouse or with your kids or with your coworkers, students? When's the last time you have been so excited to get to school or get to your, your, your homeschool co-op to share something that God is showing you in the pages of Scripture? You couldn't wait to get to your friends and say, I can't wait to tell you what I'm learning. That's what it means to delight in the law of God. It begins to consume you. 
When's the last time that's happened? Do you read God's word with eager anticipation or has it become more like a religious duty? Check, check. I got my Bible reading in. Check. Here's why this is so important. Whatever shapes our thinking shapes our lives. Did you get that? Whatever shapes our thinking shapes our lives. Verse one, if you allow the influence and the counsel and the lifestyle of the wicked, their attitude to influence you, what will happen? It will begin to shape your life and you will go on that downward spiral of sin. But if in contrast in verse two, you delight in the law of God, you fill yourself with the truth of who God is, what he requires of you, that's what, how he wants me to think. That's what he wants me to say when a student says this at school or when a, a coworker does this against me and how I'm supposed to respond. That's what the word of God says. God, you be glorified. I'm gonna do what you say. Whatever shapes our thinking shapes our life. And the reality is the more we allow the wicked to influence us, guess what? The less we tend to delight in God and his word. I've talked to a number of friends who are in ministry that have had to step down, sadly, step down from ministry for various reasons. And as I've talked to them about how did that happen, you, you were my mentor, you were my godly example, you were the one that all of us said you would never fall. You want to know what was one of the first things that fell out of their life? reading the word of God. They got so busy serving the Lord, so busy doing ministry, so busy teaching other people truth that what did they skip? The Ezra 7.10 principle. Ezra studied the law. He applied it and then he went and taught it to the people of Israel. Sometimes that's all we do. We study it and then we share it with others. Well, what are we missing? The application part. For some of you this morning, maybe you haven't had a quiet time in a long time. This is an opportunity for you to say, why is it I'm not delighting in the law of the Lord? Because if you're not delighting in the law of the Lord, more than likely, what are you delighting in? Something or someone else. Be careful. Well, if we are righteous, walking on the blessed path of life, by verse one, avoiding the influence of the wicked, and by verse two, delighting in the word of God, then verse three tells us what the way of the righteous promises what is the way of the righteous promise? Verse three, he will be like. If you're avoiding the influence of the wicked, if you're delighting in the law, this is what you will be like. A tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither and in whatever he does, he prospers. What is the way of the righteous promise? Growth and prosperity. How many of you wanna be signed up for that? I wanna grow, I wanna be prosperous. Absolutely. Again, the context, if you've ever been to Israel, Israel is filled with what? what? Olive trees, yeah. What else? That's true. My mom just totally caught me off guard. That is true. Olive trees. Thanks, mom. What else? As you drive from point A to point B, what is Israel mostly filled with? Desert. Yeah, that's what I was looking for. Thanks, mom bailed me out of that one. Desert. I mean, it's like desolate. I mean, in some ways, when I, I've only been to Israel once, but I felt like I was in East or West Texas. No offense. You know, driving to Florida, driving to California. In some of those parts, it's like just different shades of tan and brown and gray, and that's all it is. So when you come around the corner and you see this little row of green, 
What, what is typically that indication of? There's a water source there. It's no different in parts of Texas than it is in Israel. This picture of a green, thriving tree next to a stream is a perfect example of the Lord's blessing in the Old Testament that's often used throughout the Old Testament. The state of blessedness or happiness is not a reward, however. I think sometimes we get the idea that we're like this little dog and God's like, okay, do this trick. Sit down, roll over. Okay, good, good boy, good girl. Okay, I'll, I'll just do what you say and you'll reward me. That's not the picture here. It's not like blessing and happiness is a reward. Rather, it's the result of a particular type of life. Did you get that? The blessing comes from a particular type of life. That's the whole contrast of this, these two ways. Just as a tree with a constant water supply naturally flourishes, so too the person who avoids evil and delights in God's word naturally prospers. For such a person is living within the guidelines set down by the creator. That's the key. This person has all the qualities of a strong, healthy fruit tree. Notice verse 3. It's planted by streams of water. The Bible nourishes and refreshes. It keeps our mind renewed with a biblical mindset. Every word, every deed is focused from the word of God to the glory of God. Nourishes me, keeps me on the path, keeps my mind set on the Lord. Notice it also brings fruit in its season. Some of you are like, I'm not seeing a whole lot of fruit. Well, that's encouraging. It's seasonal. Some of you are young in the faith and you progressively grow. This has the idea of displaying fruit of the Spirit in word and action. And not only will this fruit bless you, but the Lord will use the fruit of the Spirit in your life to become a blessing to others. Think about that. If your home could just have more love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, faithfulness, what would that look like? What, what if your office or your class at school or, or, or your neighborhood could just embody those nine fruit of the Spirit? What would happen? Think of the unity and the peace, how little conflict we would have. I'm just going to be brutally honest. Not that I make a habit of lying as a pastor. <laughs> Sometimes my quiet time saves me from wrath. I will read a verse, and as I'm trying to figure out what this verse means, and I'm trying to do it, and then one of my kids or my wife will do or say something that I don't like, and because I have the gift of dry sarcasm, what do I want to do? Bless my wife and my daughter with a timely word from Chris Steyer. I'm going to let you know how I feel about what you just said or did or didn't do, but I'm going to do it with a sense of creativity. And like a flock of doves, it wants to do what? <laughs> and once it's out, what happens, guys? Uh-oh. And in that moment, my quiet time saves me because I think, man, why am I, why do, what do I, what do I want to say that? What am I trying to accomplish? What am I after? Who am I thinking about? Am I violating biblical principles of communication? Because if I had said what I was going to say to my wife or my kids, what ends up happening? The wages of sin is death. Well, they're not going to like take pitchforks and kill me. That's not the idea there. But what will happen? Sin separates relationships. It brings trouble. It brings pain. There's consequences when my words wound. 
bearing fruit in its season not only blesses me, but it blesses others around me. Notice the psalmist says, its leaf does not wither. The blessed person is progressively growing and pleasing God as a result. How many of you have withered plants after that freeze? Yeah, like half my yard. You know, you see the withered vine, it's just dying. That's not the case here. This leaf does not wither. There's a sense of progressive growth and health. And at the end of verse 3, whatever he does, he prospers. This word prosper has the idea of successful. It's effective. It's making favorable progress. And again, don't miss this. The prosperity of the righteous reflects the wisdom of a life lived according to God's plan. It's living God's way, wisely, listening to him. You know, sometimes I don't even like to watch the news anymore. Because every time you turn on the news, there's some shooting, there's some domestic violence, there's some, I mean, it's just one thing after the next, right? How many of you are like, you turn on the news, it's just depressing. We live in a world that is filled with chaos. Imagine using the rules of hockey on the golf course. What would happen? Okay, ladies and gentlemen, Tiger Woods is coming up to 8th tee. It's about 275 yards. He can probably knock this in hole in one, but we'll see. There's a hush in the crowd. Tiger Woods is getting ready to tee off. But wait a minute. What's coming out of the bushes? There's a man with a mask and a hockey stick. What is he doing? He, he just checked Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods rolled down to the hill. He just fell into the lake. He grabbed the ball, hit it with the... He's going back to T7. What is going on, ladies and gentlemen? What would happen? Some of you are like, we should try that. <laughs> Why is it that when you play golf, you use what rule book? The rules of golf. Because if you don't, what happens? Chaos. What rule book are the wicked playing by? This rule book? Do they submit to the rule and authority of God, the creator? No. And you wonder why there's so much chaos. What comes as a result of playing by the rules of the world? Prosperity? No. Now, does sin satisfy? Yeah, temporarily. They may enjoy it for a time, but in the end, what will happen? They will be found out. Now, this does not mean that God gives you whatever you want. I think sometimes people read this, they think whatever he does, he prospers. doesn't mean that he just gives you whatever you want. But it does mean that God will give you what's best and what you truly need, both here on earth and in heaven. In fact, in my previous hypothetical illustration where I'm back at work, working as a headhunter recruiter here in Greenway Plaza, when does lying ever truly work? Anybody? And then you lie to get out of a lie, and that makes it worse. And pretty soon you can't remember fact from fiction. Numbers 32, 23, be sure your sin will find you out. Galatians 6, 7, whatever you sow, you will reap. And don't forget Proverbs 13, 15, the way of the treacherous is hard. When I live, not according to the rule of God, but according to my own rules, in treachery against my creator God, 
the proverb says that my life will be hard. There's consequences. It's the opposite of prospering. So here we find obedience to God, not fulfillment of sinful passions, produces happiness and eternal productivity. And again, this is opposite the world's advertising. Well, that's verses 1 to 3. The way of the righteous, the blessed path of life. Let's look at the way of the wicked quickly, the sorrowful path of death. We can work through this pretty quickly. Let me read verses 4 to 6. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the way of the wicked, and it's a sorrowful path of death. Notice verse 4 starts with the wicked are not so. This sets up the contrast. In contrast to the righteous who believe and think and speak this way, the wicked are not so. In contrast to this luxurious, live-growing tree in verse 4, what are they likened to? Chaff. They're like chaff, which the wind drives away. Again, what is chaff? It's the worthless husk. You would beat the grain. It would separate the worthless husk uh, husk from the grain. And then they would take that big winnowing fork and they would scoop it up and throw it up into the air and the breeze would do what? Blow away the chaff and the grain would fall to the ground and you would collect it. That's the picture here. Again, this metaphor of the chaff reveals both the uselessness of chaff the uselessness of the wicked, as well as the ease with which God will deal with them. Even as the winnower casts the chaff to the afternoon breeze, so the Lord will drive away the wicked. No one will remember their place. It's a sense of worthlessness, never being satisfied and eventually removed. Because that's the first terrifying result of following the way of the wicked. The way of the wicked results in removal. Again, when is the last time you've ever seen someone water chaff? Some of you have bushes that are dead. They're obviously dead. Pine tree. Hey, hey, Bob, I don't think you need to water that anymore. I think that sucker's dead. Oh, no, no, I'm going to keep watering it. If you saw someone watering chaff, what would you say? You don't water something that's dead. What do you water? Something that's alive. Again, notice the compare and the contrast. You water the tree because it's live. You don't water the husk because it's dead. The way of the wicked results in removal, verse 4, but also the way of the wicked results in ruling, in a ruling in verse 5. Therefore, because they are on this path, the wicked will not stand the judgment nor sinners in the assembly. Therefore, this preposition sets up a conclusion. If you reject God and his ways and his son, this is the path you're on. This is what you have to look forward to. They will be judged. The wicked will have no adequate defense when standing before God at the judgment of the great white throne. They are guilty and they are damned. Again, if you want to stand in the path of sinners, verse 1, guess what? There will come a day when you will bend the knee at the name of Jesus Christ and you will fall. You see the picture there? You think you stand in your wickedness? your lifestyle, doing it your way, someday there will come a day where you will be judged and you will fall. Nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. It just simply means that they will forever be excluded 
from the company of those who are saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is emphasized by the contrast between this tree firmly planted and established and prospering versus the chaff which is separated from the grain and blown away. Kind of like the sheep and the goats, numerous passages throughout the scriptures that talk about God separating the righteous from the wicked way of the wicked results in a removal, it results in a ruling, but thirdly, in verse six, the way of the wicked results in ruin. Four, this conjunction sets up the ultimate result of this removal and this ruling. What's the reason for all this? For the Lord knows the ways of mankind, both the righteous and the wicked. In Hebrews 4.13 Reminds us there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. How many things are open and laid bare before the eyes of God? All things. What you think, what you believe, what you do in public, what you do in private, what you say to my face, and what you think about me in your mind. It's all laid bare. What you truly love, what you're truly pursuing in life, God sees and knows it all. All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him, our creator God. Verse 6 is really a final conclusion which states where these two paths end up. Not only does God know the way of the righteous, he approves. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. There's an approval there. How do we know? Because again, but in contrast, how does he respond to the way of the wicked? What will they do? Perish. I don't know if you caught this, but it's interesting to note. Why do you think the psalmist focuses on their manner of life instead of they themselves? Verse verse 6 doesn't say the Lord knows the righteous, but the wicked will perish. What does it say? The psalmist is focused on what? The way of the wicked. The way of the righteous. I think the answer is simple. There's only two ways in life. There's God's way or there's your way, which is really the world's way. And if you reject God, if you reject his son, then guess what? The result of life rejecting God is going to be a manner of life rejecting God. If you reject him in your heart, you're going to reject him throughout your days. If you're on this sorrowful path of death, it's because you chose to walk it. It's important for me to hit the pause button here and just remind you that it is important to note that a person's eternal place is not determined by how they live. You can't earn your way to heaven. We're not teaching a works-based salvation. Those who have repented of their sinful ways have received the Lord as Savior by faith, receive the righteousness of Christ, which results in this changed lifestyle. God changes us on the inside, and that begins to work and progressively change us on the outside. So his righteous life here in Psalm 1 is the result of a new life in Christ. But the wicked man, in contrast, is the one who refuses to acknowledge the need for a Savior, rejects Christ. Why? Because he would rather keep his sin than have the Savior, and thus he seals his doom. The way of the wicked will, notice will, not might, not maybe, will, what is that? Certainty. Will what? Perish. Again, where did the psalm begin? Began with the blessed, and where does it end? 
with those who perish. This is not annihilation. This is not destruction as some teach, that when you die, you just cease to exist. That's not what this verse is teaching. How do we know that? Well, there's numerous passages in the Old and New Testament that don't teach that. That's why we say ruin, destruction has the idea of ceasing to exist. Damnation has the idea of suffering an eternal consequence. The wicked will come to ruin. John 3.16, see, this is the time for, for us to use it, right? What does it say? If we believe in the Son, we will not, what? Perish. What will we have? Eternal life. What's the opposite of that? If you don't believe in the Son, you will perish, and you will have what? Eternal, what's the opposite of life? Death. Turn with me to Matthew 3.12, quickly, just as we close. Matthew 3.12. John the Baptist, talking about Christ, uses this picture of chaff. Matthew 3.12, it says his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor and he will gather his wheat into the barn but he will burn up the chaff with what? Unquenchable fire. Again, John the Baptist knew his Old Testament imagery and he understood what this meant. The image of chaff burning, it's possible that even as he was telling the story they could smell chaff being burned because what was chaff really good for? Nothing. You threw it into the wind and it blew away. Well, this is really the only other purpose for chaff. Sometimes you would use it as fuel to feed a fire. And what kind of fire is this? When Jesus comes as judge with his winnowing fork and he throws us up into the air and the righteous fall and are recovered, but what happens to the wicked? They're collected and they are put in an unquenchable fire. See, the way of the righteous is the way of the Lord Jesus Christ who described himself how? I am the way, the truth, and the what? The life. John 14, 6. And in John 3, 36, we receive the promise that whoever believes in the Son has what? Eternal life. This road leads to heaven. Put your trust, your faith, your hope in Jesus Christ alone. The way of the wicked leads to just judgment and hell Because John 3, 36 at the end, it also promises that those who do not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on them. Look, you may think you have time to get religious later, but the reality is you don't know how much time left you have on this earth. You may think, hey, God doesn't really see all. Well, guess what? You're wrong. He knows what's going on in your heart. He knows. If you're living a double life, if you are the epitome of a hypocrite, He knows. He sees. He knows your heart. And as he's promised from the beginning of creation, he will punish unrepentant sin. If you eat the fruit of this tree, you shall surely not have a tummy ache. You shall surely die. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. You may think that you are on the right way and it makes sense to you. It's logical. You seem to be getting away with the wicked lifestyle that you've embraced. The word of God warns you this way that seems right to you in the end it leads only to death. You will perish. 
So if you're here this morning and someone convicts you because you know, even as we walk through these two paths, the way of the wicked and the way of the righteous, you know you're on the way of the wicked. You know you are listening to their counsel. You are beginning to accept and adopt and do their lifestyle and you are adopting that fatal attitude as a mocker of God. There's hope. There's hope for you. And that hope is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, I beg you that this would be the day of your salvation. This would be the day that you recognize I am a sinner who deserves hell. This is me. I am on this road. Because God loved you so much that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross, be raised up on the third day so that you could have life as he took your death. The Bible says you must repent of your sin, ask God forgiveness. And the scriptures say he will forgive. Turn from your sin and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. I pray that this morning would be the day of your salvation. Well, Psalm 1 this morning has taught us how to wisely stay on the blessed path of life and how to avoid the sorrowful path of death. The righteous not only avoid the influence of the wicked, but they delight in the word of God. Why? So that they may grow in Christ-likeness and the prosperity that comes from living life God's way. Are you on the blessed path of life? I pray that we all would remain and follow him. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the truth of your word which challenges us to examine our life in the direction that we are on because there are two paths in this life. One is your way and the other is ours, the world's. And so I pray that those who are on the righteous path of life that you would sustain them and encourage them. They have everything they need pertaining to life and godliness in Christ. So would you give them the grace to appropriate it and live by it as they delight in your word and live your way. Lord, for those that are here this morning and you know who they are because you see their heart, Lord, would you please grant them repentance leading to life eternal. We ask this for your glory and ultimately for our good. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.